Section 22 of Lives of the Queens of England, Volume 5, by Agnes and Elizabeth Strickland. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Mary, Chapter 5, Part 2. At this crisis, Queen Mary gave way to anger. She had offered, if any nobleman would take the charge and responsibility of her sister, that she should not be subjected to imprisonment in the tower, but no one would undertake the dangerous office. The queen then expedited the warrant to commit Elizabeth to the tower. The Earl of Sussex and another nobleman were appointed to conduct the princess thither, but she persuaded them, it does not seem for any particular object, except writing a letter to the queen, to outstay the time of the tide at London Bridge. This act of disobedience incensed Mary. She rated the offending parties at the council board, told them that they were not travelling in the right path, that they dared not have done such a thing in her father's time, and finally, as the most awful feature of her wrath, wished that he were alive for a month. Well she knew that he was never troubled with scruples of conscience, concerning how the ancient laws of England regarded treasons, open or concealed, for if he supposed that even a heraldic lion curled its tail contumaciously, that supposition brought instant death on its owner, despite the genius, virtue, youth, beauty, and faithful service. There was a seditious piece of trickery carried on in the city at this time, which, if it had happened in the days of Henry the Eighth, would have been followed by deluges of blood. In an old uninhabited house in Aldersgate Street, a supernatural voice was heard in the wall, which the people, who gathered in the street to the amount of seventeen thousand, affirmed was the voice of an angel, inveighing against the queen's marriage. When the crowd shouted, God save Queen Mary, it answered nothing. When they cried, God save Lady Elizabeth, it answered, So be it. If they asked, What is the mass? it answered, Idolatry. The council sent Lord Admiral Howard and Lord Paget to quiet the spirit, which they did, by ordering the wall to be pulled down, and soon unharbored a young woman named Elizabeth Croft, who confessed that she was hired by one Drake's to excite a mob while queen mary reigned alone and possessed that share of health which permitted her sometimes to exercise her high functions according to her own will an amelioration certainly had taken place in the severity of punishment for in the parallel case of mock prophecy in the time of henry the eighth elizabeth barton though undeniably an epileptic and consequently unconscious of posture was hung with seven unfortunate companions Queen Mary took no similar vengeance. The heroine of the voice in the wall was set to the pillory for her misdeeds, but with no attendant cruelty, or the minute city chroniclers would have specified it. Thus did this grotesque incident pass on, without the usual disgusting waste of human life. Another adventure, still more absurd, proves the state of excitement which pervaded all natives of England, of whatever age and degree, concerning the Queen's marriage. Three hundred children, assembled in a meadow near England, divided themselves in two parties to play at the game of the Queen against Wyatt. These little creatures must have been violent partisans on both sides, for they fought so heartily that several were seriously wounded, and the urchin that played Prince Philip, the Queen's intended spouse, being taken prisoner and hanged by the rest, 
was nearly throttled in good earnest before some people alarmed at the proceeding of the small destructives could break in and cut him down noel the french ambassador who relates the story and being a detected conspirator against the queen maligns her on every occasion affirms that she wished the life of one at least to be sacrificed for the good of the public the truth is the queen requested that a few salutary whippings might be dispensed and that the most pugnacious of this band of infantry might be shut up for some days and that was all the notice she took of the matter conspiracies against queen mary's life abounded at this unsettled time even the students of natural philosophy which despite of the stormy atmosphere of the times was proceeding with infinite rapidity were willing to apply the instruments of science to the destruction of the queen i have heard says lord bacon there was a conspiracy to have killed queen mary as she walked in st james's park by means of a burning glass fixed on the leads of a neighboring house i was told so by a vain though great dealer in secrets who declared he had hindered the attempt of all things the queen most resented the libelous attacks on her character which abounded on all sides she had annulled the cruel law instituted by her father which punished the libels on the crown with death but to her anguish and astonishment the country was soon after completely inundated with them both written and printed one she showed the spanish ambassador which was thrown on her kitchen table she could not suffer these anonymous accusations to be made unanswered she said with passionate sorrow that she had always lived a chaste and honest life and she would not bear imputations to the contrary silently and accordingly had a proclamation made in every county exhorting her loving subjects not to listen to the slanders that her enemies were actively distributing this only proved that poison arrows gave pain but did not abate the nuisance the remonstrance from the protestants in verse was found by the queen on the desk of her oratory when she knelt down to pray this was couched in very different terms from the indecorous productions which had so deeply grieved her for this poem was excepting a verse or two likening her to jezebel affectionate and complimentary its strains are much in the style of sternhold and hopkins the commencing stanzas are o oh, lovely rose most redolent of fading flowers most fresh in england pleasant is thy scent for now thou art peerless this rose which bears such a smell doth represent our queen o oh, listen that i may you tell her colors fresh and green the love of god within her heart shall beautify her grace the fear of god on the other part shall establish her in place the love of god shall aid her cause unfeigned if it be to have respect unto his laws and hate idolatry your ministers that love god's word they feel the bitter rod who are robbed of house and goods as if there were no god and yet you do seem merciful in midst of tyranny and holy whereas you maintain most vile idolatry for fear that you should hear the truth true preachers may not speak but on good prophets you make ruth and them unkindly treat him have you made lord chancellor who did your blood most stain that he may suck the righteous blood as he was wont again those whom our late good king did love you do them most disdain these things do manifestly prove your colors be but vain god's word ye cannot well abide but as your prophets tell in this you may be well compared to wicked jezebel 
therefore my counsel pray you take and think whereof no scorn and you'll find it the best advice ye had since ye were born this homely posy allows the queen's good qualities in the midst of the recapulation of her protestant subjects grievances how she received it is not known but it is an amiably disposed canticle in comparison with the foul and fierce libels her enemies were pouring forth to her discomfort at the same period amidst all these troubles and contentions mary found time to examine with approbation the latin translations of her little kinsman lord darnley and to send him a present of a rich gold chain as an encouragement for some abstract he had made either from sir thomas more's utopia or in imitation of that celebrated work a letter of thanks to the queen from this child is extant which proves that she had frequently sent him valuable gifts and treated him kindly mary encouraged him to proceed in a learned education in which he was early progressing according to the unhealthy system of precocious study in vogue at that day of which she herself and her brother edward the sixth were noted instances the little lord darnley in his letter designates queen mary as most triumphant and virtuous princess in allusion to her late conquest of the rebels his epistle being written on the twenty eighth of march fifteen fifty four in quaint but pretty language he expresses his wish that his tender years would permit him to fight in her defence he was the eldest son of queen mary's cousin german and early companion lady margaret douglas at this time first lady-in-waiting and wife to the scottish exile lord matthew stuart earl of lennox it is matter of curiosity to trace queen mary's patronage of lord darnley and his family during his early life since he was involved in utter historical obscurity till his important marriage with the heiress of the english crown in fifteen sixty five the queen had not only to contend with her discontented subjects but with the machinations of most of the foreign envoys at her court besides the french the venetian ambassador was deeply involved in the plots for dethroning her his treachery was first revealed to her by a person no less illustrious than sebastian cabot the first discoverer of north america who spent his honored age in england the country he had so essentially served and adopted for his own his depositions before council showed that he was unwilling to see england convulsed by the intrigues of his countrymen for he proved that the insurgents had been supplied with arms from a venetian ship in the river despite of the extreme repugnance manifested by all her subjects to her marriage with philip of spain queen mary accepted his ring of betrothal brought by count egmont who had returned to england on a special embassy in march this distinguished man who afterwards died on the scaffold for vindicating the civil and religious liberty of his country was at the time of his sojourn in england in the flower of his age and was one of the most splendid soldiers in person and renowned that europe could produce the tuesday after his arrival the earl of pembroke and lord admiral howard came to escort him into the presence of their royal mistress and her council accompanied by renaud the resident ambassador who describes the scene the eucharist was in the apartment before which the queen fell on her knees and called god to witness that her sole object in this marriage was the good of her kingdom and expressed herself with so much pathos and eloquence that the bystanders melted into tears the oaths confirming the marriage were taken on the part of england and spain after which proceeds renaud 
her majesty again dropped on her knees and requested us to join our prayers with hers that god would make the marriage fortunate count egmont then presented queen mary with the ring which your majesty sent which she showed to all the company and assuredly sire the jewel is a precious one and well worth looking at we took our congé after this first inquiring whether her majesty had any commands for his highness prince philip she enjoined us to bear her most affectionate commendations to his good grace she would that they should both live in mutual good offices together but that as his highness had not yet written to her she deferred writing to him till he first commenced the correspondence this is not the only hint that renaud throws out respecting the neglect of the spanish prince he likewise shows anxiety that the gentlewomen who were most confidential with the queen should not be forgotten your majesty understands he writes to the emperor that at the coming of his highness some little presents of rings or such small gear must be made to the queen's ladies particularly to three who have always spoken a good word for the marriage these were mistress clara sue jane russell and mistress shirley in proportion of the strong wilfulness with which mary's mind was set on this marriage was the amount of temptation when she was artfully informed that the destruction of her sister and her kinsman courtney could alone secure her tempter was renaud the spanish ambassador who was perpetually urging on her attention that it would be impossible for prince philip to approach england till his safety was guaranteed by the punishment of the rebels to which the queen replied with tears in her eyes that she would rather never have been born than that any outrage should happen to the prince the spleen of the spanish ambassador had been excited by the queen sending for him on easter sunday march twenty seventh to inform him that as it was an immemorial custom for the kings of england to extend their mercy to prisoners on good friday she had given liberty to eight among others northampton the brother of catherine parr none of whom had been implicated in the recent rebellion for a very good reason certainly since they were safe under the ward of locks and bolts in the tower the murmurings of the discontented spaniard and his threats that if her majesty continued such ill-advised clemency his prince could never come to england occasioned the queen to weep but not to change her purpose though he zealously presented her with thuclodides in french forgetting that the english queen could read the original greek to teach her how traitors ought to be cut off in the next interview which happened at the council board renaud spoke out plainly and demanded by name the victims he required before she could be blessed with the presence of her betrothed his words are that it was of the utmost consequence that the trials and executions of the criminals especially of courtney and the lady elizabeth should take place before the arrival of his highness the answer of queen mary is a complete specimen of the art of dismissing the direct question by a general observation she had she said taken no rest nor sleep for the anxiety she felt for the security of his highness at his coming but this answer did not spare mary from another urgent requisition for kindred blood bishop gardiner remarked that as long as elizabeth lived there was no hope of the kingdom being tranquilized and if every one went to work roundly as he did things would go on better this savage speech gives authenticity to a passage which occurs in an old memoir of elizabeth's early life entitled england's elizabeth in which the following assertion occurs 
a warrant came down under seal for her execution gardner being the inventor of that instrument master bridges no sooner received it but mistrusting false play presently made haste to the queen who was no sooner informed but she denied the least knowledge of it she called gardner and others whom she suspected before her blamed them for their inhuman usage of her sister and took measures for her better security if the lieutenant of the tower had not had full confidence in the attachment of mary to her sister he dared not have made such an appeal the measures Haywood describes as taken by Queen Mary for the security of her sister's person were chiefly sending Sir Henry Bedingfeld with a strong guard to take the entire charge of her till she could be removed to a distant country palace. This appointment, he affirms, took place on the 1st of May. Here again is another historical mystery explained of Elizabeth's after amicable conduct to Sir Henry Bedingfeld that gentleman though deeply devoted to her sister was plainly the guardian of her life from the illegal attacks of gardiner and the privy council the perpetual delays of the trial of elizabeth and courtenay had been in a series of grumbling dispatches to the emperor attributed by renaud to gardiner whom he accuses so perpetually in consequence of being the friend of elizabeth that the reader of these documents is half inclined to believe he was such but the positive attack on elizabeth's life in which gardiner planned the species of tragedy afterwards successfully acted by burley in the case of mary queen of scots removes all doubts regarding his enmity to her the apparent ambiguity of his conduct arose from the fact that he was in reality courtney's friend and elizabeth and courtney were so inextricably implicated together in this rebellion that one could not be publicly impeached without the other some reason existed for gardiner's protection of courtenay the family of this noble had been martyrs to catholicism it is very doubtful if courtenay though politically tampering with the protestant party has shown the slightest personal bias to protestantism and he had withal been for some time gardiner's fellow-prisoner in the tower it is certain from whatever causes that gardiner had always been the great promoter of courtenay's marriage suit to the queen and since the insurrection he must have considered the liaison between courtney and elizabeth as a fresh obstacle to these views the cruel intentions of both renaud and gardiner against elizabeth had been plainly enough spoken at the council conference narrated by the former it is as plain that she had but one friend in the fearful conclave and that was the sister at whose deposition and death she had connived but whose intense constancy of disposition would not suffer her to destroy one whom she had tenderly caressed and loved in infancy in one of these sittings of council was first started the idea of marrying elizabeth to the brave but landless soldier philibert emmanuel of savoy the dispossessed prince of piedmont thus removing her by wedlock if not by death this was from the commencement of the end of mary's reign a favorite notion with philip of spain probably connected with it was the proposal of sending elizabeth to the care of the queen of hungary but mary no more approved of her sister's removal from england than of her destruction as subsequent events proved renaud notices a remark made by lord paget that it was vain to think of remedying the disorders of the kingdom without the thorough re-establishment of religion meaning catholicism this he added would be difficult 
if the opinion of the chancellor gardiner were followed who was anxious to carry through the matter by fire and blood in some passages renaud himself blames the violence of gardiner in matters of religion and how savage must gardiner have been if he excited the reprobation and disgust of a man whose inhumanity has been shown to be glaring as for the queen whenever the ambassador blames her it is for sparing persons whose destruction was advised by the spanish government this council conference was held the day before the queen's third parliament met in westminster mary or rather gardiner had intended to summon the parliament at oxford instead of the metropolis as a punishment for the part the london train bands had taken in wyatt's rebellion this intention was overruled the queen went in great state to westminster abbey and was present with the lords and commons at the mass of the holy ghost she did not go to the whitehall chamber and open sessions this was done by gardiner who in his speech observed that the queen could not come without danger to her person because of the furious storm of wind and rain then raging the queen must have had some other motive for absenting herself since the parliament chamber was but a short distance from the abbey garner introduced the subject of her marriage formally in his address and laid before the senate her marriage articles from which it was apparent he observed that instead of the prince of spain making acquisition of england as promulgated by the rebels england had made an acquisition of him and all his father's kingdoms and provinces queen mary told renaud that while she attended the mass in westminster abbey at the opening of parliament she saw the earl of pembroke who had returned from his country house where he had been keeping easter and spoke to him and made much of him bidding him welcome and his wife also she now trusts all things will go well the parliament was earnestly employed in passing laws in order to secure the queen's separate and independent government of her dominions without control from her husband they took jealous alarm that all power was vested in the name of kings in the statute book without any mention of queen regnants and their first care was to provide a remedy for this deficiency lest philip of spain when invested with the titular dignity of king might legally claim the obedience of the nation because there was no precedent of queenly authority in the written laws of the land the speaker brought in a bill declaring that whereas the queen had succeeded of right to the crown but because all written laws had declared the prerogative to be the king's person some might pretend that it did not extend to queens it was therefore declared to be law that such prerogative did belong to the crown whether it were worn by a male or female and whatsoever the law did appoint or limit for a king was of right due to a queen regnant who was declared to have as much right as her predecessors this motion gave rise to another alarm in the house of commons which was that as the queen derived her title from the common or oral law of the land acknowledged by the english people before acts of parliament or statute laws existed she might defy all written laws in which kings were only mentioned and rule despotic queen of england it appears this odd idea was seriously discussed by mr skinner a patriotic member of the house of commons nor was his caution so superfluous as it appears at first for a tempter was already busy with queen mary dressing up this silly quibble in an attractive form for her consideration 
there was a person who had been cromwell's servant and much employed in the suppression of monasteries a great partisan for lady jane grey and in arms for her title and altogether a very busy and factious character the queen had given him her pardon with many other minor agents of northumberland yet he rose again in wyatt's rebellion and was put once more in the fleet prison he has some personal acquaintance with one of the emperor's ambassadors most likely renaud who was exceedingly busy with english affairs by whose intercession with the queen this political agitator was once more liberated while detained in the fleet he had amused himself by concocting a precious plan for the establishment of despotic power in england on his liberation he carried his manuscript which he entitled a new platform of government contrived for the queen's majesty to his spanish patron in this treatise he argued that as the statute law only named kings queen's regnant were not bound by it and therefore might claim unlimited authority and were by right despotic sovereigns from which quibble the author drew the inference that the queen could without waiting for the cooperation of parliament re-establish the supremacy of the pope restore the monasteries and punish her enemies by the simple exertion of her own will after reading this unprincipled production with great approbation the spanish ambassador carried it to queen mary he begged her to peruse it carefully and keep its contents secret as the queen read the treatise she disliked it judging it to be contrary to her coronation oath she sent for gardiner and when he came she charged him as he would answer it at the general day of doom that he would consider the book carefully and bring her his opinion of it forthwith the next day happened to be maudy thursday and after queen mary had made her maudy to her alms people gardiner waited on her in her closet to deliver the opinion she requested on the manuscript which he did in these words my good and gracious lady i intend not to ask you to name the devisers of this new invented platform but i will say this that it is a pity so noble and virtuous a queen should be endangered with the snares of such subtle sycophants for the book is not and most horribly to be thought on upon which queen mary thanked him and threw the book behind the fire moreover she exhorted the spanish ambassador that neither he nor any of his retinue should encourage her people in such projects in this interview one of the good points in the character of mary's prime minister was perceptible which was attachment to the ancient laws of england and he had sometimes dared to defend them at that dangerous period when cromwell was tempting henry the eighth to govern without law gardiner was likewise an honest and skilful financier who managed mary's scant revenue so well that while he lived she was not in debt yet he was a generous patron of learning and if he could benefit a learned man in distress even the cruelty and bigotry which deformed and envenomed his great talents remained in abeyance having thus by stating the for and against in the disposition of this remarkable man humbly followed the example prescribed by shakespeare in his noble dialogue between queen catherine and her officer griffiths on the good and evil qualities of wolsey it remains to quote in illustration of his conduct a curious anecdote concerning himself queen mary and roger ashcombe the celebrated tutor of the princess elizabeth roger himself in one of his epistles being the authority 
queen mary had promised roger ashcombe the continuation of his pension of ten pounds per annum granted by her brother edward the sixth as a reward for his treatise written on archery called the toxophilite and now said he i will open a pretty subtlety in doing a good turn for myself whereat perchance you will smile i caused the form of the patent for my pension to be written out but i ordered a blank place to be left for the sum and i brought it so written to bishop gardiner he asked me why the amount of the sum ten pounds was not put in sir said i that is the fault of the naughty scrivener who hath left the blank space so large that the former sum t e n will not half fill it and therefore except it please your good lordship to put twenty pounds instead of ten truly i shall be put to great charges in having the patent written out again but the word twenty will not only fill up the space but my empty purse too bishop gardiner laughed and carried the patent to queen mary and told her what i said and the queen without any more speaking before i had done her any service out of her own bountiful goodness made my pension twenty pounds per annum i had never done anything for her added ashcombe but taught her brother edward to write and though i differed from her in religion she made me her latin secretary he adds many commendations on the learning and wisdom of gardiner which sprang from his exuberant gratitude for the complete success of his pretty subtlety while the session of parliament continued the execution of the unfortunate wyatt took place and a few days afterwards the trial of sir nicholas throckmorton this gentleman who had given the queen the most important warning which had saved her life and crown had become malcontent and had to a certain degree intrigued by message and letter with sir thomas wyatt his trial was the first instance since the extension of the tudor line in which a jury dared to do their duty honestly and acquit a prisoner arraigned by the crown the prisoner defended himself manfully he would not be browbeat by his partial judge bromley who had been so long accustomed to administer polluted law that he was obstinate in forcing the trial into the old iniquitous way which had destroyed thousands in the fearful days of henry the eighth when condemnation followed arraignment with unerring certainty throckmorton had an answer for every one he appealed to the recently restored laws of england he quoted the queen's own eloquent charge to her judges when she inducted them into office the memory of which would have been lost but for the pleadings of this courageous man what time he said my lord chief justice to please the queen's majesty to call you to this honourable office i did learn of a great man of her highness's privy council that among other good instructions her majesty charged and enjoined you to administer law and justice indifferently without respect to persons and notwithstanding the old error among you which did not admit any witness to speak or any other matter to be heard in favour of the prisoner when the crown was party against him the queen told you her pleasure was that whatsoever could be brought in favour of the accused should be admitted to be heard and moreover that you specially and likewise all other justices should not sit in judgment otherwise for her highness than for her subject this manner of indifferent proceeding being enjoined by the commandment of god and likewise being commanded you by the queen's own mouth therefore reject nothing that can be spoken in my defence and in so doing you shall show yourselves worthy ministers 
and fit for so worthy a mistress. You mistake the matter, replied Judge Bromley. The queen spake those words to Master Morgan, chief justice of the commonplace, or please. This exordium of Mary to her judges was no hypocritical grimace, no claptrap at her accession. She honestly acted upon it, for the witness whose testimony acquitted Throckmorton that day came out of her own household. At the moment when the prisoner's life hung on the proof of whether he was conscious or not of the precise time of Wyatt's rising, he called on Sir Francis Inglefield, who, with his colleague, Sir Edward Walgrave, was sitting on the bench with the judges, and asked him to speak what he knew on that head. Inglefield immediately bore witness, like an honest man as he was. It is truth, said he, that you were at my house, in company with your brothers at that time, and to my knowledge, ignorant of the whole matter. The moment Throckmorton was acquitted, the base judge committed the honest jury to prison, who had done their duty like true Englishmen, men deserving everlasting praise as the practical restorers of the constitution of their country, long undermined by the abuses that the queen had pointed out to her judges. The facts developed in this remarkable trial indicate that the wishes and will of the queen were distinct from those of the officials who composed her government. These were men who had been bred in the despotic ways of her father. In truth, England had been governed, since the sickness and infirmity of Henry the Eighth by a small tyrannical junta, composed, for the time being, of the prevalent faction of the Privy Council. The members of this junta oppressed the people, defied the laws, bullied or corrupted the judges, cajoled and really controlled the crown, till the cup of their iniquities, being full in the next century, they actually caused the reverse of the monarchy. A place in this noxious junta was the aim and end of every unprincipled man of abilities in public life, without the slightest scruple whether he had to profess the Protestant or Catholic ritual. Such was the true wellspring of the miseries and atrocities which had tormented England since the death of Sir Thomas More. This unconstitutional power had strengthened itself during the minority of Edward the Sixth and was by no means inclined to give ground before a queen regnant of disputed title. End of section 22